Let's just bow our heads and close our eyes together as we read Scripture. As we prepare our hearts to worship God through His Word, it's important that we have clean hearts, that nothing would obstruct the illuminating, teaching ministry of the Spirit. And so the Bible promises that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and He is righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our Father, we thank you for the provision that not only allows us to be declared righteous in your sight, but also when there is sin in the life that you are able to cleanse us on the same basis through the precious blood of the Lord Jesus. It's he that we come to give you thanks and praise and worship this morning. As we open the Word of God, give us open hearts. We thank you that you did not abandon us. You didn't leave us as orphans, as your son said, but you gave God the Holy Spirit the promise of this new covenant to teach us, to lead us, to comfort us, to encourage us, to convict us. We pray for his presence today in this service, for those that are listening here or somewhere else in the world that you promised he would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. May today someone's eyes be opened. May they turn their eyes to Jesus and call upon him in faith. We ask our Father for ourselves as we open your word. Thank you that it is a lamp under our feet and a light to our path. You told us we're to hunger for it like a newborn baby desires milk. And so as we feed on it, teach us, and may we be quick to apply the things that you show us. Help me, fill me, anoint me, I pray in Jesus' holy name, amen. Would you take God's word this morning, please, and turn to Romans chapter 5. If you're joining us for the first time, we just finished the prophet Malachi, and before we begin our next exposition of another book of the Bible, I'm doing a series on our new identity in Christ, and that's really the focus of Romans chapters 5 through 8. Now, the world would encourage you to look within to find your identity, to find it in the externals. Some are tempted to find it in their career, since a large part of your life might be in the kind of work that you perform. After all, sometimes your career sometimes can give you status and wealth as well. But careers change, people retire, the world changes, but there's one who never changes. We studied him in the prophet Malachi. He is compared to a rock. The New Testament says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so discovering our identity in Christ is more than just saying, well, I'm a born-again Christian or I'm spiritual. It's understanding what that means, what its implications are, how God views us, and how we are to think about ourselves as new creations in Christ Jesus. So God wants us to understand that when we receive the Lord Jesus, we are a new creature and we are given a new identity. You can see on the note-taking outline, if you're new, there is an outline there in your bulletin that I think you'll find helpful. You can print it out if you're viewing this online. And the topic this morning is God's eternal love. In the late 1800s, Queen Victoria reigned over England. Next to the last queen, she was the longest reigning queen in English history. 
And she would attend church at St. Paul's Cathedral every Sunday. And at the end of the service, the queen nudged the pastor and said, can one be absolutely sure of their eternal safety? And he responded and he said, I know of no way where you can be absolutely sure in this life that if you die, you will go to heaven. And that brief conversation was overheard and it made the court news. And it caught the attention of another pastor by the name of John Townsend. In reading of her question and that pastor's answer, he wrote this note to the queen. Quote, to her gracious majesty, our beloved Queen Victoria, from one of your most humble subjects with trembling hands but heart-filled love, and because I know that we can be absolutely sure now for our eternal life in the home that Jesus went to prepare, may I ask your most gracious majesty to read the following scriptures. John 3.16, Romans 5, 1 through 11, Romans 10, 9 and 10. I sign myself your servant for Jesus' sake, Pastor John Townsend. He was not alone in praying for the queen. He brought some of his fellow pastors into his confidence as they prayed for her. And about two weeks later, he received the following letter to Pastor John Townsend. I've carefully and prayerfully read the portions of Scripture referred to. I now believe in the finished work of Christ for me and trust by God's grace to meet you one day in the place he has prepared for us in heaven, Victoria. After Queen Victoria was converted to the Lord, she came to that deep assurance of salvation and wanted to tell everyone. And she would carry a little booklet that was written by a famous evangelist of the day, George Cutting, and it was entitled Safety, Certainty, and Enjoyment. And that is precisely the focus of this text of Scripture, the safety, the certainty, and enjoyment that we can know in Jesus Christ. Now, she didn't know it because she was Anglican. And in the Anglican Church and the 39 Articles of the Faith, they say it's impossible to know you are saved that you can't know for certain that heaven is your home. That's a tragedy. Now, there are certainly Anglican people who, through their study of Scripture, think otherwise. But on their written confession, it's very similar to Catholicism, unlike Protestant Christianity that looks at sola scriptura as our only authority. So I want to begin reading this morning in verse 6 where we left off. I hope you brought a Bible. I know some of you are new every week, and you've never needed to bring a Bible to church, and I understand that. You don't need them in most churches. But I'm not here to share my opinion. We're here to study God's infallible word. Romans chapter 5, beginning now in verse 6, for while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we're enemies, we're reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Let me set the broad and then the immediate context. If you remember, as this chart shows, 
The book of Romans divides into three principal sections. Section one deals with God's righteousness revealed. It's what we call the doctrinal section as he focuses on three critical doctrines. Section two, nine through 11, deals with God's righteousness vindicated. The subject is the people of Israel. We so therefore call it the national section of the book of Romans. And God's righteousness is proved that when he made a promise to Israel, he will keep his promise in spite of their unbelief. And then in chapters 12 through the end of the book, 12 through 16, we find God's righteousness vindicated. We often call this the practical or the applicational section. And we've learned that each of these three sections in turn divide into three sections. So right now we're in the doctrinal section. He begins with the doctrine of condemnation, and he walks through every possible segment of society, whether it's the nation of Israel that's been chosen, the highly moral religious man, or the downright pagan, that all men are guilty, they are sinners by nature, and under the wrath of God. But he did not leave us there, and so in the introduction to this series, we studied Romans 3, 19 to 28 where the doctrine of justification begins. And he shows how it is that God can bring us back into a right relationship with himself. Finally, when you come to the chapters 6 through 8, he will deal with the doctrine of sanctification. Justification deals with our position, where there's a transfer of righteousness. God credits you with the righteousness of Christ when you receive him as your Lord. It's a great promise. Sanctification is that process after you are saved where he conform you, conforms you to the image of Christ. And so we're dealing with this new identity we have in the Lord. Now to zoom in just a little bit, notice the very first word in this chapter, chapter 5, is the word therefore. And of course, whenever you see the word therefore, you ask what, it is, what is it therefore? This is the fifth therefore in Paul's letter to the Romans. And again, he's explained man's sinful heart and how God can redeem man. In chapter 3, he taught us that salvation is not by works, it's not by ritual, it's not by ancestry, it is only by the grace of God. And then in chapter 4, he illustrates it with two of Israel's most famous people, Abraham and David, to show that they were not saved by good works, but by the grace of God alone. And he unfolds the lives of these two men, not just to give us a, a biography of justification, but to apply it to our lives. And so the very first word that follows is therefore. In other words, on the basis of what I've just explained, on the basis of what we've just explored, Here's something that together we need to experience. So verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've noted that he is not speaking of the peace of God, but peace with God. The peace of God is that peace that you might know within your heart, that internal feeling that everything is okay. And of course, that's one of the marks of being spirit-filled. Our fruit of the Spirit is, among others, peace. But that's not what he's referring to here. He's speaking with peace with God. Paul speaks of the peace of God when he writes the church at Philippi. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, 
Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's the internal feeling. That's not the subject of this chapter. He is dealing with what we were like before we were saved, and when we are reconciled to God, we are no longer what verse 10 calls us enemies, but we are, in essence, God's friends. Tightening the context, look at verse 2. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Because we have peace with God, no longer hostility between us and the Lord if we've been saved, we have an introduction. Some of your English Bibles say access. I prefer introduction as here in the NASB and is in the King James because access potentially is something that you could take the initiative to make happen. But the word here is introduction, and it's used in the Old Testament of someone who is brought into the presence of the Lord. It's used in secular Hebrew, in the, even in the um, Greek translation of the Old Testament, we call the Septuagint, where someone is introduced or brought into the presence of a king. And so, since we have been justified, we now, unlike old covenant saints, have access. We have this grace in which we stand. Not only do we have an audience with God, but we stand in this grace. And interestingly, the word stand is in the perfect tense. You remember your 12th grade English? Most of us don't. Some of us had what we called modern English. But the perfect tense, like in Greek, refers to a past act that's over but has continuing effects right on into the presence. So because the grace of God that has been shown us, we have been declared righteous, we have peace with God, and we stand in this grace, and it continues, and it continues, and it continues. And so, verse 2 again, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And so we explored this word, hope, unlike in English, that has some doubt to it. Well, I hope so. I hope it doesn't happen, or I hope this will be true. The word hope, elpidis, in the Greek New Testament, has a lot of steel and concrete to it. It is used in the New Testament in every single case, without exception, of something that is sure and definite that will happen in the future. And so it's a glorious thing to have acceptance that the war is over, that we no longer are under God's wrath and God's disfavor. Now, beginning in verse 3, he moves from our standing to our state. Our standing, our position is perfect. It's unchangeable. It's eternal. Our state, our experience is based on decisions that we make. One is unchanging. The other is progressive. And so, he says here in verse 3, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Now, don't forget, the first half of chapter 5 is giving us reasons for rejoicing, and each reason is separated by the phrase, and not only this. You remember that in verses 2, in verse 3, and again in verse 11. And each reason is greater than the previous reason. Look at verse 2, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. 
And then in verse 3, he introduces us to a second reason. And not only this, but we exalt in our tribulations. And then verse 11 will conclude the section, and not only this, but we exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the NAS is most precise in that it uses the word exalt three times, or in the newer one, the word celebrate. And that's good because it's the same word used all the way through. Now, the word exalt means to to elevate, to, to lift up, so we exalt the name of the Lord. But to exalt means to rejoice in Him. And so maybe it's clearer to use the word celebrate in the newer translation. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations. Again, some translations may say sufferings, like the ESV, but again, the New American Standard, in this case, the King James and the Young's literal, says the word tribulations. And that's an important distinction that we noted every time, because a suffering is not necessarily a tribulation, though certainly all tribulations are sufferings. We tend to blend together, well, we have trials and tribulations in this life, and we tend to mix the two synonymously. And certainly God uses trials. Consider it all joy, my brethren, not if, but when you encounter various trials. And so while all tribulations are trials, not all trials are tribulations. And so he uses a very specialized word. And it's a word that is used to refer to the kind of opposition an unsaved world will bring upon you because you know Jesus and live for him. It's a technical term. The LEB that one of my professors at seminary was involved in the translation, he rendered it afflictions. And that's not bad because afflictions are something that is done to us. Now, I gave you several examples. Let me give you some new examples. Again, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. So, for instance, in Acts eleven nineteen, So then... Those who are scattered because of the persecution, it's the word thalipsis, the same word that Paul has just used in Romans 5.3. In fact, if you had Acts 11.29 open, the word persecutions would be footnoted. It would bring you out into the margin. It would say literally tribulations. And so those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. Jesus had prophesied in Acts 1.8 how the church would grow. You'll be my witness in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then to the remotest part of the world. And so when the persecution happens to Stephen where he's rocked to death, it spreads. It becomes an impetus to kill other people, to harm other people. And so like Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and the gospel only went further. That was tribulation. Or listen to these words when Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1.8. He says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction. Same word, philipsis which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we even despaired of life. In other words, it was tough. People were beating up on these men. 
Likewise, John identifies with his own readers in Revelation 1 and verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation. There it is, thelipsis, persecution. The tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which were in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's there because of preaching the word and the testimony that he had for Jesus that Domitian hated. And so he would exile these people to this barren island called Patmos. In preparing his apostles, the Lord Jesus said this. We read it last week. In the world you will have tribulation, philipsis. But take courage, I have overcome the world. Likewise, Paul told those new Christians in Lystra, through many tribulations, same word, we must enter the kingdom of God. So tribulation is not simply a trial, it's that pressure, it's that persecution that will come on you for living for Jesus. And if you live for him, and if your testimony is not secret service but verbal, sooner or later you will have opposition. So again in verse 3, and not only this, but we exult in our tribulations. And notice it is plural because it's not typically a singular experience, but it happens over and over and over again. Now please notice, Paul does not say we exult in spite of our tribulations. He says we exult in our tribulations because he understood the blessings that tribulations could bring. Let's read the rest of verse 3. And not only this, but we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. We circled that word knowing last time. There's something that God wants us to know, something we need to understand if our life is going to develop and mature for Jesus. We need to know that tribulation brings about perseverance because we could not learn perseverance or endurance apart from tribulation, because without tribulation, of course, there's nothing to endure. And so we can rejoice in our trials, like James teaches us, like Peter teaches, we can endure in our sufferings, and as Paul teaches here, we can endure and then rejoice in our tribulation. Why? Because God uses it as a means to an end. The world may have ill will against you, but what they meant for evil, God means for good. Again, further, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and per perseverance brings about proven character. That word proven is the word that we would use in English for silver when we add the word sterling in front of it. It's the highest grade of silver with all the impurities removed. And so proven character describes iron ore, so to speak, that is put through a smelting oven or gold or silver, and what's left is pure metal. It's what we call proven character. We noted last time in Romans 1.28, the opposite word is used. He takes this word dokimos, and he puts the alpha prefix in it. Like there's the word millennial, thousand, amillennialism, as they deny the millennial reign of Jesus. Dokimos, proven character. Adokimos is rendered there a reprobate, a depraved mind. It's the opposite of holy character. Follow further. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. You say, how does this give you hope? 
Listen, when you go through tribulation and you respond to it in a God-honoring way, you begin to see God's work in your life. You begin to see in a fresh way His commitment and His care for you, even though the world may hate you. You snuggle up to the Lord, as we often say, as God seemingly snuggles up to you. And so if we know this truth, that tribulation is something that brings about hope, notice how the paragraph started in verse 2. We exult in hope of the glory of God, that is, in God making us more like himself. And the paragraph ends in verse 5, in hope does not disappoint. How so? Is this just, just like Joel Osteen, positive thinking? What do you mean? Well, he unfolds it for us so that we, he can be very definitive about this. We know it's not just positive thinking. One, because God wrote it through Paul. He's inspired, but he wants to remind us of a truth. Look at verse 5, and hope does not disappoint. It doesn't leave you embarrassed or ashamed, and why not? Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Verse 5, by the way, only makes sense if you're listening to me and you've been born again. Because if you haven't been born again while you are physically alive, you are still spiritually dead. But when you are born again, the Holy Spirit makes you a temple of himself. And when he is at work in your life, when his love is overflowing through difficult times and he takes on his role as the comforter, you experience the love of God being poured out in your heart. By the way, this is the very first mention of the Spirit of God in the book of Romans. And again, it happens when you are saved so that he can say in Romans 8, 9, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you've not yet been saved. You're not one of his. And so if God loved me so much to come and live in me on the inside, making me a temple of the Holy Spirit, can that kind of hope ever disappoint? Absolutely not. That's his rationale. That's experiential truth. And again, if you've had this new birth, and if you're growing, you haven't remained a baby Christian, and the heart overflows through the mouth, you start speaking about the Lord Jesus, you will find opposition. Most of it, as we noted last time in this life, is not physical, but it is verbal, but it will come. But in the midst of that, you experience inwardly that special ministry of the Spirit of God. Now, Paul wants us to know that God's love is very different from man's love. And so he is going to move past this experiential aspect of God's love to a very objective expression of God's love. And that's verses 6 through 11. If you're using your note-taking outline, there are three dimensions of the love of God that I want to underscore this morning. First, the properties of God's love. He reminds us how different God's love is from ours. And so he underscores the properties of God's love, and he begins by reminding us that God loved us while or when we were helpless, when we were helpless. Notice again how verse 6 begins, for while we were still helpless. The very first word in the text is the word for. In other words, he is giving us another reason why hope does not disappoint. For. Now, the word for, you'll see it throughout the New Testament. 
and it can translate different Greek words. And a translation that is trying to do a literal rendering, a word for word, will just say four. In a paraphrase, they might add several words. And the word for can either be the word gar, that means because, or in this case, it's the little Greek conjunction eti, meaning let me explain further. Let me elaborate further precisely what, it, what I mean. And so again in verse 6, for while we're still helpless, here's why we can know that God's love never disappoints and it gives us a sure and certain hope, for if while we're helpless... Now, the word helpless is an important word. It's used of someone who, depending on the context, could be severely sick. And in that sense, they are helpless. They are weak. They are without strength. For instance, in Acts 28 and verse 9, Luke is describing Paul's experience on the island of Malta. And he uses this word, the people on the island who had diseases. Same word we just read, translated helpless. We're coming to him and getting cured. And so in the physical realm, it is used to describe infirmities or sickness, severe weakness. We're not talking about a little cold here. We're talking about serious sickness. It is also used in the commercial realm of someone who is in deep, desperate shape financially. For instance, in Acts 20 and verse 35, in everything, I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak, the impoverished, and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. By the way, when did Jesus say that? If you have a red letter edition of the Bible, you'd say, oh, that's in red letter. Where is that from? Nowhere in the Gospels. It's unique here to the Acts, and Paul writes us this phrase that Jesus had said, and it made it into the book of Acts. But this word is describing people who are in deep, dark trouble financially. They are weak, and so it's more blessed to give them to them than it is to receive. But in the spiritual realm, it's used of someone who is spiritually bankrupt. Do you remember in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are going to the temple during the hour of prayer, and they see a man there who is lame by the gate called Beautiful from birth. The Bible tells us in Acts 3, 2, that his friends would literally pick him up, and they carried him to the gate of the temple, where people would come into the temple, and he would beg. And what a choice place to beg. You might as well go, one, where God's people are. They can be very generous and compassionate. Maybe they understood what Solomon said to lend to the poor, to give to the poor is to lend to God. Or maybe some of them are very guilty and they gave money to assuage their guilt, but for whatever reason, it was a good place. And if you remember, Peter and John came up to this man and he asked them for money. And Peter responds in Acts 3 and verse 6, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. And according to verse 8, he didn't get up gradually and slowly, but notice, with a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. He's the first Pentecostal, he might say. By the way, this is a legitimate miracle done by legitimate divine healers. 
You say, does God still do miracles? Not like he did here. Doing a miracle and to be able to heal supernaturally was unique to apostles and to apostolic delegates. We know that from 2 Corinthians 12 when Paul defends his apostleship. That doesn't mean that God doesn't heal or can't do the miraculous. So when people are very sick, I pray for the miraculous. But there's a difference between you and I praying for the miraculous and God doing the miraculous through an individual. And by the way, the healer of our day who asked the man, well, I guess you didn't have enough faith, that's your problem. They never ask him how much faith he has. They just heal. And they don't say, well, you've got your healing. You told me you believe God. It just hasn't been actuated yet. It was instant. It wasn't gradual. He got up and he leaped. But in New Testament terminology, he was helpless. So whether it's in the physical realm or the spiritual realm, it refers to bankruptcy. So understand, spiritually speaking, God does not come to help those a little bit. He doesn't come to help those who have a little bit of good in them, and he just pushes them the rest of the way. No, according to the text, he comes to those who are helpless. You could translate it, they're powerless. They are, as the King James says, without strength. And so, morally speaking, in the eyes of an infinitely holy God, we're helpless, we're bankrupt spiritually. So God loved us when we were helpless. Secondly, there on your outline, God loved us while we were ungodly. Not only did he love us when we were helpless, but God loved us when we were ungodly. Let's keep reading here in verse 6. For while we were still helpless at the right time. Jesus did not come too early. Jesus did not come too late. The text says here he came at the right time. Why? Because the incarnation was predicted. A thousand years earlier, David, who was not only a king but a prophet, wrote in Psalm 22 how the Messiah would die. 700 years before Christ, Isaiah the prophet also describes crucifixion, that he would be pierced through for our iniquity. Understand, crucifixion had not yet been invented as a means of execution. The Persians introduced it about 300 years before Christ, and the Romans perfected it as a means of capital punishment. The prophet Daniel, 600 years before Christ, predicted the very year, not only the very year, the very day in which the Messiah would come and present himself to Israel in that 70 weeks prophecy found in Daniel 9. I have four sermons on it. It works out to Palm Sunday. Zechariah said he'll enter in Jerusalem on a donkey. The wise men knew in light of the mathematical computation God had given through the prophet Daniel that this star they saw could be none other than the star that the book of Numbers mentions that this is the time for Messiah. And so according to the book of Galatians, Paul will say, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. From a historical, prophetical, and governmental point of view, he arrives at just the right time. Crucifixion is in place as a means of capital punishment. 
The world is at one of its darkest states in human history, and the second coming, the Bible teaches, will replicate that, especially after the church is removed and the Holy Spirit's restraint through the church is gone. The Roman Empire has the Pax Romana. They have an established peace. They have a road system that will provide the gospel going throughout the entire empire. And there's a common language, Koine Greek, that you can converse in to spread the language. And so here in verse 6, notice, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We're described here as ungodly because instead of loving God by nature, we are rebels against him. The Greek adjective translated here, ungodly, describes not only attitude, but innate action. We've already seen it used in Romans 1.18 in the introductory sermon of those who suppress the truth in ungodliness. He's describing the fact that all men know God exists. There are no atheists, biblically. The man who says, well, I was an atheist and I got saved, he should refine his testimony to say, I said I was an atheist. And I got saved, but he wasn't an atheist. Not if you take Scripture at face value. That's why, again, the Bible only dedicates one half of one verse to atheism. Listen, the fool has said in his heart there is no God, but men have this knowledge of God, and they suppress the truth in ungodliness. We saw it also in Romans 4, to the one who works, his wage is not given to him as a favor, but what is due, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who saves, who justifies who? The ungodly, the same word. And so God saves the ungodly. And God wants to underscore that we are morally bankrupt, that we are helpless, because in God's eyes, each and every one of us are ungodly. Hold your finger here. I looked at a parable. Go to Matthew chapter 21 about a month ago, and I guess I raised more questions than I gave answers. That's the problem of just touching on sometimes a text. But turn to Matthew chapter 21 where we find the parable of the two sons. It's unfortunately a neglected parable. I memorized it as a new Christian. Uh, sadly, though, I memorized it in the 1978 version of the New American Standard, where the first son is the second son, and the second son is the first son in the later editions. You could actually render it either way, but for consistency, to match all the other English translations, they did the same thing. But follow it here. In this particular section of Scripture, Jesus is contrasting the religious Pharisees with those who were harlots. And those are basically the two major groups of people that you would see in Jesus' day. You're either highly religious, some a minority who are in right relationship, or you were just a downright pagan in a culture that was filled with suppressing knowledge of God. And so what he does in this particular parable, if you remember, is he shows that very oftentimes the harlot is closer to becoming a believer than the highly religious man. Look at verse 28, Matthew 21. But what do you think? A man had two sons. So this parable shows us two different sons in the same house. A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, and by the way, the father spoke to each son individually, and that's the way God speaks to you today. 
He speaks to a family, but he speaks to us as individuals because I can't get saved for my children and my children can't get saved for me. He came to the first and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. So the first son initially refuses to work for his father, not wanting to yield to the father's will. He later regrets it. He spoke wrong, but he changed his mind. We call that repentance. That's what the word metaneo, the verb means to change your mind. Verse 30, the man came to the second and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. So again, two classes of people. One who represent Israel and the highly religious people during Jesus' day, the very self-righteous people. The other represent the tax collectors and sinners. Now, when John the Baptist came preaching to the religious crowd, they showed initially interest. And they respectfully said, I will, sir. But they didn't. They didn't repent. Where these tax collectors and Pharisees who had rejected the testimony of the Jewish scriptures that they heard repeatedly, some from men of integrity, some who were not so much men of integrity, they had no interest. But when John the Baptist came along, they changed their mind. And by the way, churches are full of people that imitate the second son, and they respectfully admit the word of God is true. They intend to get serious someday, only to keep up with the external appearance of being religious. Verse 31, which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. So they talk about repenting, but they do not repent. They talk about believing, but they do not believe. They talk about submitting, but they do not submit. All the while, they are sinning against the light that they know better to sin against. And Jesus gave such a warning in John 12, 36. While the light is among you, believe in the light that you might become sons of light. But in spite of all the miracles he was doing in their presence, they didn't respond. And so judgment came on their unbelief. He, God, hardened their heart. He, God, blinded their eyes. He, God, stopped their ears that they might not believe and be saved. Listen, you don't come to God on your terms. You come on his terms. Today is the day of salvation. And if he's at work in your heart, don't put him off because there can come a time when you will no longer hear that still, gentle voice calling you to the Savior. And so Jesus says in Matthew 21, 31, to these religious men who are hard in their conscience, truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom before you. You see, the tax collectors and prostitutes, as you know, were considered the dregs of the Jewish society. They didn't need convincing that they had a moral problem. And so while they did not initially respond, they later changed their minds. And so back here in Romans 5 and in verse 6, when it says, Christ died for the ungodly, please understand, he's not saying he died just for the ungodly. 
just for the helpless. He's not dealing with the extent of the atonement in this verse. In fact, when we come to the second half of Romans 5, he's going to tell us that Jesus died for each and every person who's ever lived and yet to be born. He's dealing with the intent of the atonement. That is, those who will respond. And in that sense, the Scripture can say that Jesus laid down his life for his sheep. All men are ungodly. The problem is, is not all people recognize or are willing to admit they are ungodly, that they are truly helpless in the sight of God. And by the way, if you can show me anytime, anyplace, anywhere that someone comes to Jesus, admits their problem, and they exercise genuine faith, and he doesn't receive them, then I'll shut this book and I'll quit tomorrow. But you cannot find it anywhere. So listen, God loves the unlovable. He is compassionate to the helpless. He's compassionate to the ungodly. Those are the properties of God's love. Secondly, let's think further about the proof, the proof of God's love. To really and truly understand the proof of God's love, we need to remember that the essence of loving is giving. In the most quoted verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world, he gave. Paul said to the church at Galatia, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. In addition, we must remember that the degree of love, even today, even the way you love people, is measured by two factors. First, the cost of the gift by the giver, and secondly, by the worthiness or the unworthiness of the recipient. And the more the gift costs the giver, and the greater the recipient is unworthy, the greatest expression of love. And what Paul wants us to understand is that God gave everything to people who deserved absolutely nothing. So point A is that Christ died for people who were unworthy. Notice how verse 7 begins. For one will hardly die for a righteous man. He's making a contrast in this verse between two kinds of people that one may sacrifice his self, his life for. It is unlikely that one will die for a righteous man. The Greek word righteous, dikaios, is used here to, to, to define someone, to describe someone whose morality is cold, it's detached. It's upright, but it's not attractive. For a person who's moral or righteous in his behavior, but he's not warm and kind towards his friends. Perhaps, maybe, though unlikely, you would die for that kind of person. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, the agathos man, someone will die. And this word that he uses, this different adjective, describes someone who is warm and kind in their expressions towards you. It could be your mother. It could be your brother, your best friend, your child, where you would be willing to sacrifice everything, even your life for them. But notice how verse 8 begins. The very first word I have circled, but. One of the great contrastive verses in Scripture, but God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, we learned in chapter 3 that the cross was a demonstration of God's righteous character, Romans 3.26. The, uh, the, the whole riddle, so to speak, how can God be just and not just wink at sin, and at the same time save someone who is guilty? 
Well, he becomes just and the justifier through the cross. And so he reminds us that he is acting justly without violating his righteous character through the cross. He calls that in Romans 3.26 a demonstration, same word, of his righteous character. But here he's using the cross as a demonstration of God's love. Depending on your translation, God demonstrates or he shows or he commands or he proves just how great his love is in that he gives us his son. So here in Romans 5, he is assuring us that he loves us through the death of his son. I have it underlined three times in the passage. He underscores that truth. In verse 6, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In verse 8, while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. In verse 10, we're reconciled to God. How? Through the death of his son. He is reminding us how different God's love is from our love. Our love tends to be self-seeking. It's often built on a desire to enrich ourselves. It makes us feel good, or maybe we can get something from a person. And it is usually driven by something that is quite lovable in the person, maybe something that's commendable, something that's admirable in their life, something that's desirable in the person we love. But by contrast, God's love is totally uncaused. He loves us not because we are lovable. He loves us because the scripture says God is love. By the way, while we're here, have you ever asked yourself how according to verse 8, the cross could be a demonstration of the Father's love? If Jesus were only a man, as I spoke to one man in my office this week, a Jehovah's Witness, I hope he came today. If Jesus were only a man, as the cults, Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, Christian science, on and on we could go, liberal Protestants. If Jesus were only a man, then how is God demonstrating his love in giving us his son? The fact is, it would be no demonstration of the love of God at all. But if Jesus is not only a man, but he is God in human flesh, if, as the scripture affirms, there is one God, not three, one God who exists in co-equal, co-eternal, inseparable persons, then the Father in giving of his Son is giving of himself. And so the scripture says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So first, the proof of God's love is seen in that Christ died for people who are unworthy. Secondly, consider that Christ died for people who are in need, who are in need. Again, we read here in verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we're yet sinners, underline that, Christ died for us. If you remember in chapter 3 in the introductory sermon, we saw that the Greek word translated with the English word sin, can be used adjectively as a noun or as a verb. The adjective used here in verse 8 is used to describe the person doing it, namely a sinner. The noun hamatia is used to describe the finished product, what we translate as sin. And the verb, like in Romans 3.23, is used to speak of the actual action, that describes what brought about the noun, so to speak. Here's the point. Whether it's a verb, a noun, or an adjective, the nuance is the same. It means to miss the mark. 
And it's used that way, by the way, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, translating a Hebrew word that also means to miss the mark. Now, each of these words in first century koine or common Greek could be used in a non-religious context, say if someone's shooting a bow at a target, as you've often heard, and they miss the bullseye, and so you would say, hamatalo, you have sinned. But morally, it's used in God's word of someone who has missed the target of righteousness in which God has called us to walk. Now, people can excuse or deny the fact that they have sinned, Paul will deal with this in the second half of Romans 5. The communists, for instance, in the Russian dictionary define sin in this way, an archaic word denoting the transgression of a mythical divine law. Now, it doesn't matter how you may define sin. The fact is you cannot change the truth that all of us have sinned. Whether you understand how you sinned in and with Adam, and that will be the subject of the next sermon, one of the most important pericopes in all the New Testament, the fact is, is that all of us have sin and we know it. Now, think your way through this. There are many implications. Jesus Christ is called in Scripture the glory of God. That is, he perfectly pictures the Father's righteousness. So he can say, to see me is to see the Father. And next to him, without exception, all of us miss the mark. Whether it's the harlot or the highly religious man, whether it's the liar or the Pharisee, we have all missed the mark. And as you study the Gospels, I think it's interesting and that God underscores the need that all of us have. You know, sometimes we say, well, you know, that person's really dead in their sin. They're so far from God, they need to be saved. Well, I find it interesting, fascinating, that Jesus actually raised three people who are dead. If you remember, in Jairus, uh, Jairus in Capernaum, Capernaum becomes the hometown of Jesus. When you think of Jesus' life, you think of Nazareth, you think of Capernaum, and you think of Jerusalem. He's born in Nazareth, actually born in Bethlehem. He's raised in Nazareth. He's crucified in Jerusalem. But his three-year ministry takes place in Capernaum, Capernaum, the village of Nahum. And the scripture records that as his hometown. And so he goes to Capernaum. Remember, he was thrown out of Nazareth. And he meets Jairus, whose little daughter has just died. She's still barely warm. And what does Jesus do? He goes in and he raises her to life. He goes to another town called Nain. I've noted that town for many of you. We went there on one occasion when we went to Israel, the little town of Nain. And in Nain, there was a man who had died. Rigor mortis had already set in. And they were taking him to the graveyard to bury him. And Jesus raised him up right out of that coffin. Then, if you remember, in Bethany, just over the hill on the other side of the Mount of Olives, there was his friend Lazarus, and Lazarus had been dead for four days. Now, let me ask you a question. Between the little girl and the young man and Lazarus, who was the deadest? They're all dead. You can't be a little bit dead. dead. Dead is dead, right? If you're dead, you're dead. There's no one who's more dead than someone else. 
Now, Lazarus was dead, and all sinners are dead. And with death often comes decay. They go together. But understand that in God's economy, all people are equally in need of a Savior. We were all dead, Paul says, in our trespasses and sins. You are dead if you've never been saved. You therefore need to be born again. And so to imply that somehow, well, that person's is better than me, he is in greater need of salvation, is to look at people through a distorted lens, something you do not find in the New Testament. But as we've already noted from the parable of the two sons, sometimes people who are in the deepest expression of sin are actually closer to the kingdom of God and walking into it because you don't have to convince them of their deadness. So while Christ died for everyone, the scripture also affirms he died for each one of us. Look at verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. This is the concept of substitution. If Christ died for sin and in him was no sin then the only way to understand his death is substitutionary in nature. And since our wage that we earn is death, you can pay it yourself. It will take you an infinite period of time, or you can receive the one who took your place. So as we consider the property, properties of God's love, he dies for the helpless, people who see their bankruptcy, and he dies for the ungodly, people who know their bankruptcy, that they fall short of the glory of God. Third and finally, let's think about the provisions of God's love, the provisions of God's love. Let's think first about how God has provided future deliverance, future deliverance. Let's read verse 9 carefully. Again, this is a section that Queen Victoria was reading. She was raised in the Anglican church. The 39 articles of faith deny the doctrine of assurance that you can know you're saved. That's just wrong. That's bad theology. And we have other Protestant denominations that do that, like the Nazarenes, most Methodists today, Free Will Baptists, and others. The Bible teaches you can be assured of your salvation, that you can be eternally secure. And by the way, there are many passages you can use to affirm assurance and eternal security that we cover in the discovery class. And some are just direct statements. Then others, you can reason that it's impossible to say that you can lose your salvation based on what is said. So look how verse 9 begins. Let's step through this passage of Scripture. We read in verse 9, much more than, indicating that what is about to follow is even more astounding than what is just preceded, right? Much more than, having now been justified by his blood, we shall, notice its future, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Now, if you notice in both verses 9 and 10, he has spoken of a future dimension. We shall be saved. You say, I'm confused, Paul. You just said in 5.1 that I am saved. I've been justified. I have peace with God, that I stand forever in this new standing of grace. Now you're talking about me becoming saved. Are you mixed up, Paul? 
And Paul would say, no, I'm not mixed up. You're mixed up. With that smile on his face and that twinkle in his eye, he'd say, you're confused. Because understand, salvation is a big word. There's a past, a present, and future expression. And we'll see all three of these in Romans 5 through 8. We've been saved in the past from the penalty of sin. That's when you are justified. You are being saved right now in the present from the power of sin. We're going to learn how that unfolds in your life. And if you feel like you're in this cycle of always confessing the same sin, you don't want to miss a single message in this series because they all fit together like a beautiful puzzle. But that process of becoming in your experience what God has declared you to be in your position, that's called sanctification. And some glorious day, we shall be future saved from the very presence of sin, that's called glorification. And so if some brash evangelist comes up to you and he says, have you been saved? You could say, well, no, but yes. But not in that order. You'd say, yes, but no. Yes, I have been saved and that I have been declared righteous, but no in the sense I will be saved and that I am waiting for the completion of my salvation. And of course, the argument in Romans 8 is that what God started, he absolutely will complete, that there's no leakage along the way. So we must recognize that salvation is a big word. It has a past, a present, and future dimension to it. Now, uninformed Christians sometimes will ask, but how secure am I in this relationship? I know I'm saved right now, but could I possibly in the future sever that relationship where God would change his attitude, where I'm no longer reconciled, and I've once again become his enemy? Well, verses 9 and 10 provide an incredible argument. Don't miss it. Verse 9, much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. I have been justified, not by my efforts, but how? By the spilt blood of Christ. That was the payment. So how can we be so sure that we shall be saved? Verse 10, for, here's the reason, if while we were enemies... We're reconciled to God through the death of his son. That is, if you've picked up on the adjectives, if while we're ungodly, helpless sinners whom God viewed as his enemies, we are now reconciled, that is to say, we've become his friends, that's why we can know we're saved. For some of you homeschoolers who are taking Latin, it's an a fortiori argument. Notice Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. He's using logic here. Someone asked me one time, do you believe in logic? I said, well, it depends whose logic it is. If it's divine logic that's coming through the quill of the Apostle Paul, then yes, I believe it because it's inspired logic. But he's actually using a common expression of logic, but he's putting divine terms to it. Notice how we are depicted. You should have underlined these. In verse 6, we're termed helpless we're all, in that we're unable to save ourselves. Secondly, we're called ungodly in verse 6. Why? Because of our revolt against God's authority. Third, we're called sinners. Why? Because we miss the mark of God's righteousness. And fourth, in verse 10, we're called enemies. Why? Because there's hostility between us and God. It's a fearful description 
of man and sin. We're lost in our failure. We're rebels. We're enemies. We're helpless. But the thrust of these verses is that it is for such people that Christ Jesus died. So notice, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Do you follow the argument? If God could save those who are helpless, ungodly, sinners, absolute rebels, enemies, if God could save such people, then certainly he can keep his friends. It's a great argument. It's a powerful argument. Again, an a fortiori argument. If this is true, then this must be true. If someone in their 20s is too old to sing in the youth choir, then that automatically means someone who's 30 is too old. And if God could do this over here, then he can certainly do this over here. That's the point. And notice, not are we only saved by his death. The text here says we're saved by his life. Circle the word life. Put a little error out into the margin and write down Hebrews 7, 24 and 25. Hebrews 7, 24 and 25. Let me read that to you. Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is also able to save forever those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We're saved by Christ Jesus, the Lamb who died for us. And as Paul indicates, and as the book of Hebrews underscores, we're also saved by the one who habitually intercedes for us. We have an accuser of the brethren. He's called Satan. That's what his name means. He's our adversary. But Jesus habitually defends us. And so John can say, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So the person who believes that somehow they can lose their salvation understands only one side of redemption. The death of Jesus Christ redeemed us. The life of Christ preserves us. It is a secure, eternal relationship. So God has provided future deliverance, point B there on your outline, God has provided present enjoyment. God has provided present enjoyment. We conclude now with verse 11. And not only this, but we also exalt or celebrate in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Now again, don't miss the thrust of these 11 verses. And these are important verses. It's taken us three messages to cover them. Paul is celebrating. He's rejoicing. He's exulting in God. He mentions it three times, first in verse 2, second in verse 3, and then again here in verse 11. We are to rejoice in God. We don't simply rejoice in the gift that he has given us salvation. We rejoice in the person who gave us that gift. We rejoice in God. We sing that great hymn, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. That's true. But you don't have to wait to heaven to rejoice. And one of the major marks of someone who's justified, and not just justified, but growing and spirit-filled, is they rejoice in the Lord. We don't have to drag through this life moaning and groaning. Certainly, there are those who focus only on the dark side of life, and there are aspects that if you preach the whole counsel of Scripture, there's coming doom and there's coming difficulty that is in front of us. But those things are not to smother or to crush or obliterate your joy. 
Now, we've just cracked the door on the chapter, but let's ask how can we apply this paragraph of Scripture. Let me suggest three as we close our time. Number one, how can we ever doubt God's love? Now, understanding the truths that are discussed in these 11 verses, how can we ever doubt the love of God? Now, certainly there are times in this life when we're perplexed, there are tragedies, there are calamities that we witness, that we experience. And remember, he is speaking here and rejoicing in the context of what? Tribulation, not simply trials, but tribulation, persecution, the opposite, opposition of a godless world against the people of God. He's been talking about the love of God in that context. And so when our minds are renewed and we remember that God, A, has a focus in heartache that comes, the opposition of a godless world. He's going to actually use their evil for our good. And when he affirms that through the love of the Spirit who's been poured out in our heart, experientially we know that. And objectively, when we look at the cross and what God did, then how can we ever doubt the love of God? We cannot. The problem is, is we haven't spent enough time knowing this and thinking on this. Secondly, how can we not show God's love? How can we not show God's love? Take, for instance, the institution of marriage. Paul says, husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. This verse speaks of the measure of a man's love towards his wife. The husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. How did Jesus love us? We just saw it sacrificially while we were unlovable. And what was the church doing when Christ died for her? We're in hostility towards the Lord. We were enemies of God. And again, I have all these adjectives circled. We're helpless in that we couldn't save ourselves. We're ungodly in that we're very much unlike God. We're rebels. We're sinners in that we missed the mark. And we're enemies and that we're at war with God from his perspective. And again, for the third time, the thrust of these verses is that it is for such people that Christ died. You see, people are often generous just to those who are generous to them. Some guy meets some girl, he's enamored with her, and he says, I, I worship the ground she walks on. And he blesses her with things that he can't even begin to afford. But God does not worship us. It is we that should worship him. We weren't worshiping him. We are by nature in our own little self-centered world. So Paul can say by nature, there's none who seeks God, not even one. And if there was a time as a little boy or girl, you sought the Lord, it was only an answer to someone's godly prayer. Yet again, for such people, the Lord gave himself. Men, listen, your theology of how to love your wife comes from the cross. And if you have a deficient theology of the cross, you'll have a deficient view on how you should love your wife. And I'm not just talking about our wives. What we're talking about is, Jesus said, even our enemies. Third, how can we ignore God's love? Maybe I'm speaking to some genuine born-again believer who's been out of fellowship with the Lord. Maybe someone wronged you. Maybe someone mistreated you. 
Maybe you were somehow disappointed with life and you just walked away. Or maybe you believed even the lies of the evil one, that somehow the world's ways were better than God's ways. You see, when you believe the world's ways are better than God's ways, you are doubting the love of God. Look, there's pleasure in sin for a season. But after 45 years of ministry, I've seen the fruit of the world's ways and the heartache and the pain of some guy or woman who has a fling or some guy who's pouring over pornography or someone who's smoking weed or drinking the world's drink or just ignoring what God says we should even do on the Lord's Day where 80% of America isn't even in church today. Or it might be that you're here or you're listening, and it's not that you have walked away. You don't need a spiritual recharge. You need a birth from above because you've never been saved. And God has placed before you this morning a preacher of the Word of God filled with the Spirit of God presenting to you the Christ of God. What are you going to do with it? Oh, pastor, I've been so evil. I don't, I don't know if God can save me and love me. Then you haven't been listening. Listen, if you want to die and go to hell, you can die and go to hell. But just know if you die and go to hell, you will not go there unloved. You may go there unsaved, but you will not go there unloved. And I can promise you today on the authority of this book, if you will call upon him in faith in an instant, he will save you. Will you take him at his word or will you call him a liar? Faith is taking him at his word and without faith, you can never, ever please God. Let's stand together for prayer. Our Father, we thank you this morning for your word, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We pray that because of our exposure in the word of God, our minds and the way we think about life and about others would be radically changed, that you would have more freedom to conform us to Christ's image. I pray, our Father, that we would not just be hearers who look in a mirror for a moment and forget what kind of person we are, but that we would go home and meditate and let these truths reverberate in our souls that we might be changed. I pray today, Father, for someone who's here, who's lost, they've never been saved. You said today is the day to be saved. Thank you that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Thank you that whosoever will may come. You said today is the day to be saved, that in a split second, our eternal destiny can be saved if we receive your gift. Help someone today to change their mind about their sin, that it's offensive to you, that it needs to be forgiven and changed. And to call upon Jesus. Thank you that whoever will call on his name will be saved. Would you do that? Would you say, Lord Jesus, save me. We thank you, our Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? You're already there. Thank you. You're here this morning, and maybe you made a decision today 
You say, what do I do next? You make it public. If you know Jesus, you won't be embarrassed. You won't be ashamed of him. Maybe you made a decision for Christ in recent days. You should make it public. We just baptized some people in the last service. They're saying by their baptism, I am bragging on Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection is seen, is symbolized in baptism. That's an act of obedience every child of God should take after they're saved. You say, well, preacher, I've been saved, I've been baptized. Do you have a church home? It's called membership in the New Testament. Are you a member of a Bible-believing church? I'm not saying an attender. I'm saying a member. There's a difference in the New Testament. If you have a decision like that to make, then I invite you to leave your seat there in Graniteville, there in Grays, or here, and meet me here in the front. Would you come?